0: it's the ralph nader radio hour
1: stand up stand up you've been sitting way too long
0: welcome to the ralph nader radio hour my name is steve scrovan along with my co-host david Spellman. hello david good morning and of course the man of the hour ralph nader hello ralph hello everybody today we're pleased to be joined by law professor and author randall kennedy to reflect on the legacies of Randall Robinson, Harry Belafonte, and Glenn Ford. All three men were lifelong black activists advocating for human rights at home and abroad. Randall Robinson was a civil rights attorney, human rights activist, and author. He spent his career fighting against apartheid, fighting for democracy, and working to influence America's foreign policy toward Africa and the Caribbean. Harry Belafonte used his success as a singer and actor as a platform for his activism, and brought the entertainment industry's clout and financial support to civil rights and human rights causes. Glenn Ford was a committed socialist, a Vietnam era military veteran, and a member of the Black Panther Party. He served as a Capitol Hill White House and State Department correspondent for the Mutual Black Network. In 1977, he co founded America's Black Forum, which was the first nationally syndicated Black oriented program on commercial television. And he co-founded the Black Agenda Report in 2006. We're going to discuss all three of these very important figures with Professor Kennedy. And as always, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Rosa Mokhyber. But first, let's pay tribute to some very important activists.
2: David Randall Kennedy is Michael R Klein professor at Harvard Law School where he teaches courses on contracts criminal law and the regulation of race relations is the author of several books including contracts happiness and heartbreak for discrimination race affirmative action and the law and say it loud on race law history and culture welcome back to the Ralph Nader radio hour Randall Kennedy
3: thanks so much for having me on thank you very much randall to our listeners this is an unusual type of program we're going to pay tribute to the careers of three african-american pioneers in furthering justice in our society glenn ford randall robinson and harry belafonte and we're pleased that we have someone who has known of their careers and what they've done and why they should be remembered And not just in terms of nostalgia and respect, but in terms of future forays in the eternal struggle for a just society. There's a lot to learn from these pioneers. Let's start, Randall Kennedy, with Glenn Ford, who passed away on August 18th, 2021. And in his obituary in the New York Times, it was begun this way, quote, Glenn Ford, who over a 50-year career was a leading voice among progressive black journalists and a constant scourge of the liberal establishment, especially black politicians like Barack Obama, died on July 28th in Manhattan at the age of 71, end quote. He also was very critical of the Congressional Black Caucus in Congress. Could you give us your take on Glenn Ford? I will,
1: but let me preface my remarks by saying that you've, you've chosen three very interesting people, and I think that one thing that the listeners should you know, keep in mind is that the three that you've chosen, I think, are all progressive. They are very different, and I think that's a useful thing to keep in mind because you know I think that the tent of progressivism should be a large tent. Not everybody's going to think the same. And indeed, there's going to be some friction between various tendencies amongst progressives. Now, let me answer your question. You asked about Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford, of the three that you've mentioned, Glenn Ford among, you know, between Randall Robinson and Harry Belafonte, Glenn Ford would probably be the furthest to the left. He would be the one who would be the most radical of this threesome. He was a person who believed that the United States is not just imperfect, to use a word, for instance, that President Obama would use. You know, President Obama would say, well, the United States is imperfect. No, Glenn Ford would say that the United States is radically unjust and that the only way to really redress the problems that are in American society is through, you know, taking some very strong radical potions, radical medicine. Glenn Ford really wanted the political economy of the United States to be transformed. He was not a person who wanted Black people to be integrated into the United States of America that currently exists with just a you know, a bigger piece of the pie going to black people. He was a person who wanted the whole thing to be reshuffled. So, Glenn Ford was a true radical. I have to tell you, I mean, I agreed with some of the positions he took, but I disagreed with some of the positions he took. But he was a strong, principled radical. So, let me give you an example of how he was principled. There came a time. When I think it was during probably the first administration, the first term of Barack Obama and Angela Davis of radical fame had a lot of nice things to say about Barack Obama. And Glenn Ford took out after her and said, you know, what are you talking about? This guy, you know, yeah, he's black, but he has values that are really values that, you know, any radical should be challenging and challenging very strongly. So he, he was a guy who was really willing to come out after people, including, by the way, me. And so, you know, I doff my hat. I tipped my hat to Glenn Ford. He was a strong progressive. He really wanted to push the United States of America in a more progressive direction. And he stuck at it.
3: You know, he was a quite an accomplished journalist, too. He was a journalist in Washington, D.C. He was a critic of the mainstream news media, a critic of what he called the black misleadership class. But I think what really made him stand out in the programs we had him on was he never differentiated between class and race the way it's now differentiated. He shared Cornell Westview that race matters, but so does class, and that class is often the progenitor of racial injustice, starting, of course, with the cotton plantations and slavery, but continuing throughout the generations where economic privilege and concentrated power of white plutocrats led to severe discrimination in employment, housing, health care, access to public service, black farmer opportunities, and basically generated the economic propulsion for deep-set day-to-day racism. And he understood all that in such a historical context and was able to convey it. And he, he infuriated a lot of black leaders, especially the Congressional Black Caucus, which gave him the back of his hand. So he was very much involved sometimes in political campaigns, like the 2002 mayoral race in Newark. He was a severe critic of now Senator Cory Booker. He couldn't stand people in the black community who talked out of both sides of their mouths to cater to the white power structure. Wouldn't you say that was one of his cardinal attributes, Randall?
1: I think that was I think that was I think there was a lot uh you know let's unpack a little bit of what you said I mean he was basically he was basically a socialist made no bones about that again like I said before he wanted to challenge you know the political economy of the United States what one of the things that's sort of interesting that's that's happened over the past let's say 25 50 years maybe is the sort of conflict between people who push very strong a racial critique of American society. It's about race, 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 race. And it's, you know, lodged very strongly in, you know, the Black Power Movement or going back further, even, you know, Black nationalism. So you have that strand, but you also have a longstanding Socialist strand among Black progressives. One might think of, you know, great A. Philip Randolph, one might think of Bayard Rustin, one might think of, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. And that strand really stresses the importance of the class dimension. And one thing that has happened is that there's some degree of friction between the people who really pushed a discussion of class. Versus the people who push race. And sometimes these tendencies have really been at loggerheads with one another. And there's been some degree of hostility between them. And, you know, Glenn Ford was very much in the camp of those who insisted that at every point, those who want to really do something about the race problem in American life, have to be keenly attentive to the class problem in American life.
3: And when he founded the Black Agenda Report in Mm -hmm. 2006 with several of his colleagues, he made that point again and again and again. And his legacy most immediately is the Black Agenda Report and the colleagues who are furthering that format of communication to a larger audience. Any last comments before we turn to Randall Robinson
1: No this has been helpful. I'm I'm glad that you have, you know, urged people to remember and recall Glenn Ford. You know, I want to go back. You were speaking earlier with the economist Binion Applebaum and he said something that I think is really worth underlining. He said that, you know, progressives, he thought, don't pay enough attention to stories, don't pay enough attention to myths. I think he's right. And along with that is I don't think that progressives pay enough attention to the people who have been in their camp. We don't pay enough attention to people who have passed away. We don't pay enough attention to recalling people who have been heroic within our midst. And again, I say this as a person who is sometimes, you know, extremely critical of some of the people that you've mentioned, you know, including Glenn Ford. I mean, you know, I think that practical politics is very difficult. Sometimes compromises have to be made. And, you know, Glenn Ford was really allergic to compromise. And, you know, I think that sometimes one does have to compromise. I think that sometimes getting three quarters of a loaf is worth some degree of compromise. Now, Glenn Ford wasn't like that. He pressed his foot down on the accelerator all the time, and most of the time he was going to be extremely critical of any compromise. And you know, it was at that point that you know he and and, and me would differ. But again, I'm really glad that you have you know brought forth his name and urged us all to remember him and his long career.
3: Well, you know, Randall, we need people like Lynn Ford to pull in one direction uncompromisingly, mm-hmm. because the corporate interests always pull in the other direction uncompromisingly. And then we need people who are in between and have sometimes have to face hard realities, you pointed out.
0: At this point, I'd like to insert a snippet from an interview we did here on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour with Glenn Ford, in which he and Ralph talk about the Congressional Black Caucus and why African-Americans vote for Joe Biden. This is from June 2020, the summer of the presidential election campaign.
4: Now, the Black Caucus degenerates by the year. They used to have, oh, about 12 or 14 members who could be counted on to vote correctly on most social justice and even foreign policy anti-war issues. But that little core of at least passable progressives has really shrunk into maybe seven and I'm not sure about them. The whole new crop of Black Caucus members, except for a couple in the last six or seven years, has been almost uniformly putrid. The problem here is the duopoly system of the United States. In the duopoly, in which there are two corporate parties, one of those parties in the United States, because it is a racist society, one of those parties is always to the white man's party that is the party whose organizing principle is white supremacy and since 1968 or so that's been the republican party used to be the democratic party but always one of those parties is the white man's party which means that effectively black america is relegated to one party it becomes a one party state and since the democrats opened their arms to both black voting and in the 1960s, black America has become totally infested with the Democratic Party. All of our civic organizations become annexes of the Democratic Party every election cycle. The churches are bastions of the Democratic Party. Fraternities and sororities act as organizing centers for the Democratic Party. So it is a true infestation. And what is amazing about the current wave of protest is that it is occurring in an election year election years in the united states totally soak up all of the attention people put down their occupy wall street banners and start doing their duty to the duopoly during election years but here we are very late in that year approaching the time that if it weren't for coronavirus we'd be looking forward to the major party conventions and yet the movement is still in in high gear that alone sets this wave apart from the usual profile.
3: Let's go to Joe Biden. Why do the blacks vote for Joe Biden?
4: If you have this one party situation. That is, if you're going to be involved in this duopoly politics, you have no choice but to support the Democrats if you're black. That is, unless you understand that movement politics, the politics of people in the street is even more powerful. But if you're going to vote for the Democrat, if the white man's party is actually the existential threat, and especially with Trump at the helm of the Republican Party. Lots of black folks do feel that way, that the Republican Party is an existential threat to black folks. We get the situation every presidential cycle in which black folks feel that their real job in the primary election is to pick the Democrat who has the best chance of beating the Republicans, the white man's party. And Of course, the candidate who appears strongest among the Democrats is going to be the candidate with the most money. The candidate with the most money is going to be the corporate candidate. So we have this bizarre spectacle in black America in that even though blacks are the most left-leaning constituency in the United States on issues of social justice and war and peace, in primary elections, blacks tend to vote for the corporate candidate, who they perceive as being the strongest contender to beat the white man's party candidate.
0: Now back to Ralph and Professor Kennedy.
3: So let's move on to Randall Robinson, who I knew and met at forums at Busboys and Poets. He would have a forum when his book came out in Washington. and His brief description, Randall Robinson, and I'm quoting from the New York Times Remembrance, quote, was born into poverty in a rat-infested home without central heating, a telephone or a television set. Mr. Robinson was raised by loving parents, both teachers. He went on to win a basketball scholarship to college and to graduate from Harvard Law School in 1970. He described himself as, quote, a pained victim of stolen identity, end quote raised in segregated Virginia, who grew up to galvanize Americans against apartheid in South Africa and champion reparations for the descendants of slaves. He died at the age of 81 on March 28th, 2023. And by reparations, he made clear in his groundbreaking book that it wasn't about sending checks to individuals. It was about institutional restoration for the plight of African-Americans in the context of American society. That means education, health, shelter, safety, opportunity, and the rest. Can you give us your commentary on Randall Robinson?
1: I can, and here I must say, I wanna repeat. I think that this effort to pay attention to progressives who've gone before is very worthwhile. I knew Randall Robinson. You know, it's not I'm not saying that I was, you know, a a close, close friend, but I knew him and was inspired by him. He's a bit older than me. He was a wonderful progressive. He was the founder of TransAfrica, an organization that attempted to put into contact with one another the various offshoots of the African diaspora. He was very deeply involved in the effort to rally public opinion in the United States against apartheid. You might recall that there, there was a time, it's been forgotten, but there, there was a time when the United States government refused to cut its ties and refused to put real pressure on the South African regime. And in order to put pressure on the United States government, Randall Robinson convinced people to go to the South African uh, embassy and picket and get themselves arrested. So, for instance, you mentioned Cornell West. I, rec- I clearly remember Cornell West being arrested outside of the South African embassy. So was Randall, more than once. Oh, Randall Robinson, many times. And, I mean, he was the architect, really. He was the, Randall Robinson was the architect of the anti-apartheid struggle in the United States. And he conducted the struggle on various levels. I mean, part of it was diplomatic, part of it was street level, you know, people just getting arrested in, in protests. A lot of it was public education, You know, let's just have meetings in which the public learns about the ugly reality of apartheid, meetings in which the public learns about the ugly reality of United States support of the apartheid regime. So Randall Robinson was very important in that respect. He was also important, as you mentioned, with respect to reparations. Randall Robinson, I remember having a talk with him. It was a very poignant talk, because I said, "You know, you've left the United States." He did. He left the United States. He spent much of the last couple of decades of his life he spent in St. Kitts. And we talked about that, and he talked to me about how he felt that the United States government had really just profoundly disappointed him and other black people. He said, "You know, I, I was fully prepared to love the United States of America. But the United States of America was not prepared to love me and people like me. That's the way he felt about it. And that's why he he left. And one of the things that really resonated with me so strongly is because that was very largely the point of view of my father of blessed memory. So Randall Robinson was was a man who used his education, and he had a very fine education, but he used his education to challenge the United States, particularly United States foreign policy, particularly United States foreign policy as it pertained to African affairs and Caribbean affairs. That's where he really focused his attention. And people ought to remember that and remember him.
3: Haiti as well. He championed democracy in Haiti and supported President Aristide, and he committed himself very deeply to the cause of the Haitian people. But as you indicated, his main focus was on the entrenched disparities and gross inequities in the United States, and he was tormented by that. He was a person that didn't smile easily. He always had it on his mind because the way he grew up, what he had to confront, and how resistant. Reform efforts have been because there always seems to be a rebound, and now we see it in many of the southern state governors and legislatures in the voter suppression area and other policies that just happen to be directed disproportionately to minorities and other poor whites.
1: I would agree with you with one slight amendment. I think that Randall Robinson is a person who really was a thorough going Pan-Africanists. I think that he he certainly felt the pain experienced by his fellow African-Americans, but he also felt the pain experienced by Haitians. He also felt the pain experienced by people in South Africa. He had a wonderful, deeply developed sense of empathy, an empathy that did not stop at the borders of various nation states. He had a empathy that was capable of crossing international boundaries. And he was able to sympathize with, frankly, people all around the world, but he had an especially keen focus on things African. And like I said, his work, if I had to put a finger on it, the, the most important work he did, I would say that the most important work he did had to do with his rallying public support for the anti-apartheid movement. And I don't think he ever got the thanks that he should have received. And by the way, when I say he, I don't think he ever got the thanks he should have received, I would say that I don't think he ever got the thanks that he should have gotten from Nelson Mandela and the forces that ultimately came to rule in South Africa. I don't think that those forces were nearly grateful enough, frankly, to Randall Robinson. There was a long period of time when Randall Robinson was in the wilderness. You know, things changed. And, you know, thank goodness. And, you know, Nelson Mandela, you know, was released from prison and he rises to become the leader of the post-apartheid South African government. And at that point, of course, he becomes, very you know, he's very popular and, you know, everybody is surrounding and, and lauding Nelson Mandela. But Randall Robinson was doing that at a time When, you know, people really didn't have Nelson Mandela much on their minds, when Nelson Mandela was in prison, when Nelson Mandela was viewed as a terrorist, it was at that time that Randall Robinson stood by and stood up for Nelson Mandela. And it's for that willingness to howl in the the wilderness that it seems to me that's one of the reasons why we should be grateful for Randall Robinson.
3: And, you know, we're talking with Randall Kennedy, professor of law at Harvard Law School. You know, Randall, you're right in the sense that he didn't have a flamboyant ego. He was not egotistical, very much focused on the work, on the mission. It wasn't by chance that his hobby was woodworking. He would carve wood, and he said he liked the process. He, He said the process of woodworking was more flexible but the product, for better or worse, could be definitive, end quote. And he once told the New York Times, quote, no matter what the outcome, it's worth it always to try. It's better when you're successful, but it's always worth it to try, end quote, which is another definition of his personal resilience and his refusal to be discouraged. Until, as you say, the last two decades, I think he just, couldn't take it anymore and he went to the West Indies yep. to live. But he would fly and teach courses at Denison College, which had mm-hmm. the law school for Penn State. So he always kept his hand in the teaching of law in addition to his writings. Any last comment before we turn to Harry Belafonte?
1: Yes, I do have another comment. And another thing about Randall Robinson is very important. He was always attentive. To younger activists. So, you know, he ran this organization, TransAfrica, and TransAfrica became the sort of the school of activism for a slew of younger activists who have gone off in various directions and, you know, pushed other movements for social justice.
0: Now, let's go to a snippet from our interview with Randall Robinson who spoke to us in 2016 from his home in St. Kitts. This one highlights his interest in human rights and the history of human rights treaties.
5: When the Allies uh, marched into Germany and into the Nazi uh, death camps and the newsreels broadcast what they found there, the world was horrified. And this spurred the new United Nations meeting in San Francisco in the spring of 1945 to move towards human rights and to move towards starting with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, pioneered by Eleanor Roosevelt and W.E.B. Du Bois. And it opened up a whole trove of human rights treaties that now bind nations around the world. There are some 23 major human rights, multilateral treaties that bind nations. And for the first time in human history, rights were given to individuals. Before World War II, what a nation did behind its own borders to its own people was a nation's own business because of the complete shield of sovereignty. That changed with the war's end, and the idea was to begin to try to protect individuals and countries around the world from the predatory impulses of the state. And so all of these human rights treaties were put in place, and hundreds of nations ratified these treaties. The problem is that the United Nations was not able to put in place an enforcement mechanism vertically from the top down through the instrumentalities of the United Nations. And nobody wanted enforcement of what is called horizontal enforcement of one nation against another. And so these human rights that individuals have in the millions in countries across the world
3: Give some give some examples. Yeah. Randall, give some examples of the names of the treaties, and whether the U.S. was one of the last to sign on, because a treaty under our constitution has the force of federal law.
5: Well, the first you had major treaty was the Genocide Convention of nineteen forty eight. Then the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights of 1966, the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights in 1966, then a treaty to combat racism in 66, a treaty to foil discrimination against women in 1979, a convention against torture in 1984, a treaty to protect the rights of children in 1989, 23 major United Nations conventions in all are in place and are the law of the international community.
3: US belongs to all of them
5: no the united states remains the only nation in the west the only uh, industrial democracy in the world that does not has not ratified the women's convention the us has not ratified the child's convention it has not ratified the convention on economic social and cultural rights it hasn't ratified a number of conventions. The US recognizes the jurisdiction of no international human rights court, including the International Criminal Court. The US does not respect the jurisdiction of that. And part this has to do with the founding of the US and, and as much as its constitution and laws were said to be self-given, And so the U.S. doesn't consult other nations, doesn't regard other nations' laws. And I think that has hurt us a bit in the world because the U.S. should be a bigger part of the fabric of what has happened than we are.
0: Now back to Ralph and Professor Kennedy.
3: So let's turn now to Harry Belafonte, which just about everybody knows. The Times started its remembrance when he passed away in April 2023 at the age of 96. They said, quote, Harry Belafonte, who stormed the pop charts and smashed racial barriers in the 1950s with his highly personal brand of folk music and who went on to become a dynamic force in the civil rights movement, passed away in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. The cause was congestive heart failure. I remember Randall as a law student at Harvard when his first song came out, the banana boat song, I would hum on my way to Langdell Hall. That's the kind of impact it had on a very few of us at the law school. And his album Calypso just took the country by storm. He reached the one million volume sales for the first time just before Elvis Presley started hitting the stage. And his friendship and support of Martin Luther King, civil rights movement, sit-ins, student groups, continued as he used his visibility to give visibility to many others. A really extraordinary, versatile person. Give us your commentary on Harry Belafonte.
1: Harry Belafonte was one of the greats. And one of the things that distinguishes him is that he remained a champion of social justice movements, even as he himself became extremely successful, he was extremely glamorous, everything was open before him. He could have just shut up and enjoyed his stardom, no problem, but that's not what he did. He enjoyed his stardom. He enjoyed his glamor but he shared it and he used it. That's right. He embraced Martin Luther King Jr. And he didn't just embrace Martin Luther King Jr. when Martin Luther King Jr. was focusing mainly on matters of race. He continued to embrace Martin Luther King Jr. when Martin Luther King Jr. came out against the Vietnam War, when Martin Luther King Jr. opened up his vision to have more of a class emphasis. So Harry Belafonte was really quite extraordinary in being so willing to share his good fortune with marginalized peoples and with social movements that were, you know, under pressure. Really quite extraordinary
3: fellow. He was a very versatile advocate for justice. He worked on famine, fighting famine in Africa. He demonstrated against nuclear weapons in Bonn, Germany in 1981. He was the UNICEF's goodwill ambassador for children around the world. He was a severe critic of George W. Bush, accusing him of being one of the world's greatest terrorists in the invasion and destruction of Iraq illegally, uh, war crime of massive devastation to the Iraqi people and the loss of life there. And here is
0: Harry Belafonte speaking at an anti-war rally in February 2003, just before the US invasion of Iraq.
6: Today is a historic and a proud day in the name of America, the world, has sat by with tremendous anxiety and with great fear that we did not exist. They have been told and they have felt that what our country with its press and the leaders in the administration have said, we today invalidate all that. We stand for peace. We stand for the truth of what is at the heart of the American people. This is not the first time that we as a people have been misled by the leadership. We were misled by those who created the falseness of the Bay of Tonkin, which falsely led us into a war with Vietnam, a war that we could not and did not win. We lied to the American people about Grenada and what was going on in that tiny island. We lied to the American people about Nicaragua, El Salvador, Cuba, and many places in the world. And we stand here today to let those people and others know that America is a vast and diverse country and we are part of the greater truth of what makes our nation. Dr. King once said that if there is, if mankind does not put an end to war, war will put an end to mankind.
3: The thing about Harry is celebrity didn't go to his head to join the jet set and be part of the celebrity news cycle. It went to his using his prominence to further other justice movements. That's what you said, Randall. It's quite a remarkable persistence right to the end of his life. He was never jaded. He was resilient, had an insatiable curiosity. Wouldn't you think that was one of his trademarks, his versatility of the way he defined justice.
1: I think that that's true. And I also think that some of the things that you just mentioned, for instance, his opposition, his intense opposition to the war in Iraq, really caused him personal, personal heartbreak. When Mrs. King died, when Coretta Scott King died, You might recall that there was a big funeral service. It was nationally telecast, and Harry Belafonte was not there. He was not there because basically it came down to President Bush being there, or his representatives being there, or Harry Belafonte being there. And a decision was made that, well, you know, there would be a preference for the highest leadership of the United States government. And so Harry Belafonte, he did make a big fuss about it. He stepped back, but he did not quiet. He did not mute his intense criticism of the Bush administration. And, you know, it seems to me that in talking about progressives, and here I'm going to sort of pick up a a point that I've made before. There are going to be conflicts. There are going to be dilemmas. And Harry Belafonte, at various points in his life, had to grapple with that. Because after all, yeah, he was a guy, he had lots of money, he had lots of stardom, he knew lots of important people, and sometimes those things came into conflict with the people that he wanted to advance, social justice activists. And one of the things that was so remarkable about him is that he embraced his activism and his activist friends. And I think one of the reasons, one of the things that enabled him to do it was his recollection of his mother. I often heard him talk about his mother. His mother was a very modest woman who, you know, worked with her hands. I think she was a domestic for a period of time and she gave him moral instruction, and he took that to heart. He talked about his mother and how his mother's example centered him. And I think that, you know, his mother again, very modest person, not a star, but it was the, the example of his mother that helped to keep his head screwed on in a good fashion. So, yeah, Harry Belafonte, yeah, he needs to be remembered and hailed along with other progressives who've passed on.
3: It's amazing how many movie deals he turned down, lucrative, because he didn't like the role, he didn't like the script, and he finally just left Hollywood altogether. So it wasn't like he was going for the bucks and putting it to good use. He would turn down the bucks on principle, and he would speak out about that. He also was not surprisingly very critical of Donald Trump. When Trump said to black people, what do you got to lose with my candidacy? Like, you know, what do you got to lose? Harry said, quote, Mr. Trump asks us what we have to lose. And he answers, only the dream, only everything, yeah. end quote. And so he he didn't play favorites. He criticized Democratic mayors of cities. He criticized Republicans. It's very refreshing that somebody like Harry Belafonte, who could have easily selectively censored himself, didn't do so.
1: Yeah. You know, your comment, I want to go back to the whole question of compromise, because I think all three of the figures that we've been discussing, Glenn Ford, Randall Robinson, Harry Belafonte, they were all people who were allergic to compromise. I tend to be more of a compromiser, but I think that your point about needing people who are allergic to compromise, really needing them. I think that's a very important point. And here I, re- I think of the United States of America before the abolition of slavery. One of my favorite progressives of all time was the great William Lloyd Garrison. You know, William Lloyd Garrison, the editor of The Liberator. They, one of the progenitors of anti-slavery immediatism. And his, you know, his position was, I'm not going to compromise. I'm not, I'm going to, at no point am I going to compromise. And of course, having that attitude is a very powerful, you know, it's a very powerful force. And having that attitude can push things in such a way that it, you know, it gives space to others to effectuate, you know, needed change. So even though I've You know, I myself am, you know, sort of more in a sort of a a pragmatic mode. I do recognize that the folks who are allergic to compromise perform a very valuable service. And I think that Ford, Robinson, Belafonte have shown that anti-compromisers can be very helpful.
3: Well, you know, I have a little story on that point. We're talking with Professor Randall Kennedy of Harvard Law School, a prolific author, books or bestsellers. Randall, one time when I was fighting the auto industry on a safety feature, reporters came to me and said, why don't you ever compromise? I said, well, first of all, what I'm asking for is long overdue and it will save a lot of lives, and it could have saved a lot of lives in the past. And I said, why should I compromise? Because the power of General Motors is gonna make me compromise, why should I help them? Mm-hmm. Why should I help them? The power of General Motors over Congress and the Department of Transportation is gonna make me compromise. So that, that's the point of Glenn Ford, Harry Belafonte, Randall Robinson, is they stood their ground, It was solidly supported in facts, morality, principles of justice, and acceptability in terms of practice. It was not pie in the sky. And why should they help the opponent's pressure to compromise the final outcome? Yeah. So that's the important point. Can we have some comments by Steve and David, please, comments or questions? Yeah, Ralph,
0: I actually, I was going to ask you a question about your own personal encounters with Harry Belafonte. Do you have any stories there?
3: Well, I was not a music lover. I would listen to classical music once in a while, but I wasn't like the type of person who had to have music every day. But the Calypso music from the Caribbean really reached me, and the lyrics reached me. And that's how I first learned about Harry Belafonte. At Harvard Law School... My class of 550 maybe had one African-American. We didn't have civil rights courses in the seminars. It was a, a very bland white law school. And here was this West Indian family immigrant who was making it big time with wonderful music. And that was the time we were demonstrating against Governor Faubus of Arkansas. That was in the late 50s. And there weren't many law students on the sidewalks. So it was quite clear, and he made it clear right from the beginning, that he was not going to just be a rich Black entertainer. He spoke out right from the beginning. And that was very uh, ennobling and very inspirational.
0: But the two of you never crossed paths?
3: I met him once in a while. I met him at the Howard Zinn Remembrance at Politics and Prose, when the great historian, Howard Zinn, who wrote the book, People's History of the United States, and then he wrote a book, People's History of the United States for Young People. They had a remembrance, and Harry came down from New York, and I met him at that time as well. And he spoke some very wonderful words about Howard Zinn. David?
2: I want to ask about civility and time and place. We're always told there's a time and a place for everything and you were talking about Harry Belafonte not wanting to show up at credit Scott King's funeral if George W Bush was going to be there and in January of 1968 Eartha Kitt spoke out against the Vietnam War inside the Johnson White House and she paid a tremendous price for that what would have happened if Harry Belafonte used Coretta Scott King's funeral to set America straight on what Dr. King believed about Vietnam and what he would have said about Iraq.
1: You know, that's I mean, there are times when people break protocols and do things which are widely viewed as impolite. Again, you know, my hero, William Lloyd Garrison, was very willing to do things and say things. I mean, you know, William Lloyd Garrison, for instance, made a habit of burning the United States flag in order to show his repudiation of a flag that stood for the enslavement of human beings. So, you know, civility is not the highest virtue. It's not the, you know, it's not the end all and be all. We all have to sort of, you know, pick our spots and, you know, sort of, make decisions, you know, at the moment as to how far we're willing to go. I think that Harry Belafonte over and over again showed real tact, just as his hero Martin Luther King Jr. did. Right. I mean, Martin Luther King Jr. showed tact. He was a courteous person as well as being a strong person. Sometimes that's right. Sometimes you have to break the law. Sometimes you have to be discourteous. It's always a careful judgment that one is called to make. I certainly would not take the position that one should never break the law. I would never I would not take the position that one should always be civil. Sometimes you have to be uncivil in order to, you know, have your, your voice heard. What ultimately matters is not the matter of civility, but what values. Are you seeking to advance? If you're seeking to to advance the right values, then, you know, I'm going to give you a break. And if you've got to engage in uncivil conduct, if you've got to be discourteous, if you've got to be loud and brash and wrong to enable people to hear the truth, to enable people to hear the expression of good values, I say go to it. And, you know, the three people that we've mentioned, Ford, Robinson, Belafonte, at various points, they did have to step over the line. And what I say is God bless them for doing it, because if you're fighting against, you know, if you're in a marginal position and you're fighting against the powers that be, yeah, you're going to have to step over the line sometimes, because after all, it's the powers that be that create the boundaries in the first place. And you can't, you know, what what the heck? You can't always, you know, play by the rules that are handed down. Sometimes you've got to break
3: those rules. History confirms what you're just saying in great abundance. Almost every social justice movement starts with nonviolent civil disobedience in our country, whether it's the anti-slavery movement, whether it was women's movement, the environmental movement, certainly the student protest movement, the anti-war movements. That's the way they broke through the Iron Curtain of the media. That's the way they reached people who couldn't be reached otherwise. And so nonviolent civil disobedience is a major chapter in the annals of the historic struggle for justice in our country. And fortunately, it worked in other countries like South Africa, India, with Mahatma Gandhi, South Africa, with Nelson Mandela, and in our civil rights movement. It just hasn't been given the intellectual credibility by historians that it deserves.
2: I think the current state of our carceral system makes civil disobedience more terrifying.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things, of course, that's going on right now are efforts to enhance punishments for people who are simply engaged in nonviolent protest, But in various states, laws are being proposed or or, or have already been passed that really engage in hyper-punishment of people who are simply seeking to express their disenchantment with things as they are. So, yeah, people do need to be very attentive to that. Of course that is simply conjoined with a number of other things that should make you know people very concerned about the state of our of our democracy. I've got to run but before I do I'd like to say one last thing and that is that I feel very honored to have been on the Ralph Nader show because of course Ralph Nader is part of the tradition that we've been discussing. He's a part of it. He's a part of the tradition of Randall Robinson and Harry Belafonte and Martin Luther King Jr. and Julian Bond and John Lewis and Medgar Evers and other people who have tried mightily to push our society in a better direction. So I'm I'm very happy to have been on the show, and I wish Ralph Nader and his associates good luck with carrying on this show. Thank you very
2: much.
3: Well, we're very pleased with having you on, Randall, to comment on these great fighters for justice so that next generation is exposed to their advances, their resiliency, their principled stands, and carry on into the future. Thank you.
0: Bye-bye. We've been speaking with Professor Randall Kennedy. We will link to his work and the work of the three activists we discussed on ralphnaderradiohour.com. Now let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokhyber.
7: From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, June 16, 2023. I'm Russell Mokhyber. There have been 736 U.S. crashes since 2019 involving Teslas in autopilot mode. Far more than previously reported. That's according to a Washington Post analysis of National Highway Traffic Safety Administration data. The number of such crashes has surged over the past four years. The data shows reflecting the hazards associated with increasingly widespread use of Tesla's futuristic driver assistance technology, as well as the growing presence of the cars on the nation's roadways. The number of deaths and serious injuries associated with autopilot has also grown significantly, the data shows. The most recent data includes at least 17 fatalities, 11 of them since last May, and five serious injuries. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Molkhyber.
0: Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan, along with David Feldman and Ralph. And that's our show. I want to thank our guest again, Randall Kennedy. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners, stay tuned for some bonus material we call the wrap-up, including Francesco DeSantis. And in case you haven't heard, a transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is
2: posted. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph.
3: Thank you, everybody.
2: And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard with Francesco DeSantis.
8: The Wall Street Journal and the Corporate Crime Reporter have announced that following decades of citizen pressure and action last year by Rep. Mary Gay Scanlon, Senator Richard Blumenthal, and Senate Judiciary Chair Dick Durbin, the Department of Justice has finally created a Corporate Crime Database. Under President Biden, the Justice Department has taken a tougher rhetorical stance on corporate crime, but as Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco notes, the department, quote, cannot ignore the data showing overall decline in corporate criminal prosecutions over the last decade. We need to do more and move faster, end quote. Among civic groups, the Center for Study of Responsive Law and Public Citizen led the charge to create these corporate rap sheets and are already working to expand and strengthen this new resource for corporate crime data. If you live on the East Coast, you have likely experienced dangerous levels of air pollution in the last week due to smoke moving south from Canadian wildfires. Yet, the lever reports that under current air quality rules, fossil fuel producers will not have to curb their emissions to offset this spike in air pollution because they have successfully lobbied for a loophole protecting themselves in the case of, quote, exceptional events, end quote, outside of their control. Environmental regulators are currently mulling a new rule to clamp down on this type of air pollution, but face stiff opposition from industry groups. The Washington Post reports that, in an exercise of his leverage in the tightly divided Senate, Bernie Sanders has vowed to oppose all Biden health nominees until the administration produces a, quote, comprehensive, end quote, plan to lower prescription drug prices. Sanders' role as chair of the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee means these nominees cannot advance without his blessing. This notably includes Biden's nominee for director of the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. Sanders said, quote, Politicians for years have talked about the high cost of prescription drugs. Relatively little has been done, and it's time that we act decisively. The Progressive International has issued a statement decrying the quote-unquote soft coup underway against left-wing President Gustavo Petro in Colombia. Their statement reads, quote, Ever since the election of the country's first progressive government, Colombia's traditional powers have been organizing to restore an order marked by extreme inequality, environmental destruction, and state-sponsored violence, end quote. The statement goes on to excoriate officials who have sought to undermine the Petro administration and quote, former generals, colonels, and members of the Colombian military who have not only proclaimed their opposition to President Petro, but even marched outside Congress to call for a coup d'etat against his government, end quote. Signatories to this letter include over 400 political and industrial leaders, including Noam Chomsky, Jeremy Corbyn, Jean-Luc Malencon, and former leftist president of Ecuador, Rafael Correa. The city, a news site covering New York reports that food delivery drivers in NYC have won a substantial wage increase. This victory caps off a three-year-long campaign by Los Deliveristas Unidos and makes New York the, quote, first major U.S. city to establish and implement pay requirements for delivery workers, end quote. These workers currently take home about $11 per hour. This will go up to $17.96 an hour starting July 12th and will increase to 1996 per hour by 2025. In a surprise decision last week, the Supreme Court voted 5-4 in favor of Black voters in Alabama who argued the state had unlawfully diluted their voting power, Politico reports. Over a quarter of Alabama residents are Black, but the state crammed most Black Alabamians into a single congressional district following the 2020 census, running afoul of the Voting Rights Act. Many expected the ultra-conservative court to reject the challenge and further hollow out the VRA. Instead, this ruling could significantly augment the chances of Democrats retaking the House in 2024. In Afghanistan, the Taliban has instituted a quote-unquote highly successful ban on opium. To cite one example, quote, In Helmand, by far Afghanistan's largest opium-producing province, the area of poppy cultivation was cut from over 129,000 hectares in 2022, to only 740 as of April 2023." However, some in the West, including the U.S. Institute for Peace, believe this could have disastrous implications for the Afghan economy. It remains to be seen whether the new government can find a viable economic alternative fast enough to offset these losses. The Taliban had previously banned opium cultivation when they held power in 2000 and 2001 and achieved a 90% reduction at that time. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is again licking her wounds after her nominee for the New York Power Authority was blocked by the state senate in a similar fashion as her nominee for the New York Court of Appeals, the highest court in the state. Justin Driscoll whom Hochul had appointed on an interim basis and was seeking to appoint permanently, raised red flags with New York Senate Democrats due to his ingratiation in conservative politics. Driscoll is a registered Republican who has ties to figures like Chris Christie and John Cornine. Driscoll also opposed the Build Public Renewables Act and has been embroiled in accusations of racial discrimination during his time as general counsel for the power authority. On June 9th, Politico reported that Senate Democrats will not schedule a vote for Driscoll. Projectionists at an Alamo Drafthouse movie theater in New York City have filed an NLRB petition to unionize. However, instead of coming to the negotiating table, the theater chain sent out an internal email, quote, notifying staff of the company's intention to do away with the projectionist position and replace it with a more expansive technical engineer role, end quote. This reflects how the struggle for labor rights and entertainment goes far beyond Hollywood writers and actors. This from 1010 wins. Finally, last week, Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's controversial national security advisor and alleged war criminal, celebrated his 100th birthday. The Real News Network reports that this centennial bash was attended by some of the most prominent diplomatic figures in the country, including Secretary of State Anthony Blinken and head of the International Development Agency USAID, Samantha Power. Jonathan Geyer of Vox documented many other attendees as well including Larry Summers, Robert Kraft, General David Petraeus, CIA Director Bill Burns, and Michael Bloomberg. The gang's all here. And this has been In Case You Haven't Heard.